Mr. Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother John has shown us, in our last class we were considering the remarkable promise that the angel made to Zechariah as he had entered into the holy place to burn incense before Yahweh. And the work of preparation for the coming of the Messiah had begun. Things were going into operation now that were to prepare the way for the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while Zechariah was there in the holy place and he received this visitation from an angel from heaven, some very remarkable things were promised to him as he listened to the words of the angel. Last class we considered the words of verse 15 that he could drink neither wine nor strong drink and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We saw how that verse indicates that John was to be a person who was totally dedicated to the service of his God and how his life was to be overshadowed by divine influence from the very time of his birth. When we come to verses 16 and 17 the angel sweeps us forward from the time of his birth to the time of his actual ministry uh, introducing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe verses 16 and 17 must be treated together as one because they are inseparably related one to another as we shall see shortly. In verses 16 and 17 we read and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so I was told to Zacharias at the beginning of verse 17 that he shall go before him. Go before who? Now I believe that very statement that he shall go before him illustrates the principle that we set forth at our last class. The Zacharias and Elizabeth in their younger days had prayed for a child, probably particularly prayed for a son who could carry on in the line of, 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 of Zachariah in the priesthood. But as they had grown old and become well stricken in years, it's most likely they had given up praying for a son but their prayers for the coming of the Messiah did not cease. And as they saw that nation sinking deeper and deeper into apostasy, their prayers would have become more and more earnest that Yahweh might send the Messiah, that he might lift Israel out of the mire into which they were sinking. And now an angel was standing before Zechariah, telling him that he was going to have a son and that that son would go before him, the other personage of Zechariah's prayer. And so in the answer that, Zachariah, that, that the angel was to bring Zechariah, it was an answer to both prayers in one. Zechariah was going to be given a son. It might have been years since he prayed for a son, 
But that prayer was heard. And that prayer was remembered by Yahweh. And the time at last had now come when that prayer was going to be answered. And at the same time, their prayer for the coming of the Messiah was to be answered also. And Zechariah was told that the time had now come when Yahweh was going to go to work in the midst of that nation and he was going to provide the Messiah and a forerunner who would introduce the Messiah and prepare the way for the coming of that Messiah. And Zechariah was going to be very much involved in that work because it was his son, his son from Elizabeth, who was to be the one who was to go before the Messiah for which they longed. The verse 17 goes on and it says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elias. Now who was Elias? We go back in the pages of the word of God and we don't find in the Old Testament a man by the name of Elias. The reason being that Elias is a Greek name. And when we go back to the Old Testament, we find the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And we find that Elias is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Elijah. And we know, of course, that there was a prophet by the name of Elijah in the Old Testament. Back in the first book of Kings, and in the second book of Kings, we read of Elijah the prophet. And, and, and Zechariah is told here that his son is to go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, one or two references in the New Testament that perhaps we need to look at in relation to this statement of the, of the angel. First of all, we go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verses 21 to 23. We read the statement of John the Baptist himself. In verse 21, and we read, and they asked him, this is the, the, uh, 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 the priests and Levites, speaking of John the Baptist, and they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so the, the priests and the Levites go out to John and they say to him, Art thou Elias? And he says, No, I'm not. Now we look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. And in the 14th verse of Matthew chapter 11 we read, Uh, reading from verse 12 and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violence take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if ye will receive it this is Elias which was for to come he that ever is to hear let him hear so we have in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, I am not Elias. Here in Matthew chapter 11, 14, uh, the Lord Jesus says, If ye will receive it, this is Elias, 
which was for to come. We look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. And here is the chapter that records the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ had just been up in the mount with three of his disciples. He'd been transfigured before him. And they'd seen there on the mount of the Lord Jesus Christ Moses and Elijah. Or Elias as he's called in verse 3. Moses and Elijah appeared there talking with him. Now as they're coming down from the mount we read in verse 10 and his disciples asked him saying why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? You see they've just been up on the mount they've seen Elijah. They've heard the voice from that cloud saying this is my beloved son hear ye him. And so as they're thinking upon these things they ask the Lord as they're coming down why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already and they knew him not, but they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So you see, here again we have the Lord saying, Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but they've done unto him whatsoever they listed. And so you see, there seems to be a problem between reconciling these verses. The angel Gabriel told Zechariah, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. John the Baptist said, I am not Elias. The Lord Jesus Christ on two occasions says, Elias has come already. And they knew him not. And so what is the answer to these, these problems? Well the answer lies back there in the words of, that, uh, of, of the angel to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Where he says, he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias. And those words, the angel, who was Gabriel, as we shall see as we get down a couple of verses, Gabriel, when he was speaking to Zechariah there, was lifting words straight out of the prophecy of Malachi. When we go to the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we find that the prophet Malachi is prophesying concerning the future work of Elijah the prophet. The future work of Elijah the prophet that Elijah will perform at the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Malachi chapter 4, reading from verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the, the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now here Malachi is, for, is foretelling 
the future work of Elijah the prophet. And we know that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns uh, and, and he gathers the saints together at Sinai, and when the saints move forth from Sinai, we know that Elijah the prophet is to be given the particular work of going throughout the world to the Jewish communities wherever they are found. And there he will reveal to them that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned. And then he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And he will turn the heart of the children to the fathers. And he will restore that nation. And he will bring that nation into the bond of the covenant. And he will present that nation before the Lord Jesus Christ in the land of promise. Now that's what's being foretold in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 has never yet been fulfilled. But you see, the angel Gabriel lifts these words out of Malachi, lifts the words of verses 5 and 6 out of Malachi, and he says concerning John the Baptist that he is going to go before the Lord in the spirit and the power that Elijah will have in that future day. And Elijah will have the power. He will go forth in the spirit and he will have the power to change the hearts of the nation of Israel and to restore them back to divine favour and establish them in the land of promise under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the future work of Elijah the prophet. And the angel Gabriel is telling Zechariah that his son is going to go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You see, uh, 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 and, and, and John the Baptist did go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah but they rejected him they did under him as they, uh, whatsoever they listed they had him beheaded or Herodias had him beheaded only a few people in that nation responded to his preaching you see look at verse 6 of Malachi chapter 4 the very reason that Elijah the prophet is going to go forth before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh is lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Israel in the days of John the Baptist rejected his teaching as a nation. Many individuals heeded it but as a nation they rejected his teaching and that nation was smitten with a curse. In AD 70 that nation was driven out of their land and 2,000 years dispersion among the nations. And still to this day they're smitten with that curse. Had they responded to the preaching of John the Baptist then it would have been as Elijah. There would be no further work for Elijah to do because that nation would have been restored to divine favour. But they rejected him. They were smitten with a curse and that we still await the day when Elijah the prophet will come and will, will, will transform that nation and restore them to divine favour. But it was through the spirit and power of Elijah that John was to go before the Messiah. Now, in the 16th verse of Luke chapter 1, we read, Speaking of the work of John, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And again, I believe Gabriel is lifting words out of the Old Testament. 
He's quoting here from the first of Kings, chapter 18 and verse 37. When we go back to that first of Kings, chapter 18 and verse 37, we find we're in the life and work of Elijah the prophet in the days of old. We're in the very setting where Elijah has set up his altar upon Mount Carmel. And he's going to pray that Yahweh might send fire down from heaven and consume his sacrifice. We're all aware of the the story how the prophets of Baal proved completely incapable of doing that. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 37 we read a part of the prayer of Elijah as he pleaded with Yahweh that he might give a great manifestation of power that a great religious reform might be set in motion in that nation. Verse 37, we read the words of Elijah. Hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people that may know that thou art Yahweh Elohim and that thou hast turned their hearts back again. That was the prayer of Elijah. That's what Elijah hoped to accomplish out of that contest upon Mount Carmel when fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the sacrifice upon the altar. He prayed to Yahweh that Yahweh might turn their heart back again. And of course there was that great manifestation of power on Mount Carmel. Elijah thought that that nation would repent and that a great religious reform would take place. But you see, although they saw that great manifestation of power, their hearts weren't turned. They carried on, as it were, in their own evil ways. A great religious reform did not take place in that nation at that particular time. Although that was the prayer, that was the spirit of Elijah at that time, but he he thought that Yahweh might turn the hearts of those people back again. See, Elijah at that time lacked the power to, 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 to transform that people. He lacked the power to do that in the past, but he will do it in the future. And you know, it is spoken of John there in Luke chapter 1 and verse 16 that many of the children of Israel, not all the children of Israel, not the whole 12 tribes of Israel as Elijah will in the future, but many. John's work was with individuals and not with the nation at large. Many of the, uh, uh, of the people will he, he, he turn back to their God. And so he was given the spirit and the power to accomplish that with individuals, not with the nation as it is foretold that Elijah will. And Elijah lacked the power, as it were, to, to bring about that change in times past. You know, Elijah himself had many lessons to learn at this time. Elijah thought that by a dramatic display of power from heaven the people would be instantly transformed. But it wasn't to be so. And Yahweh was to teach Elijah a little lesson. We read of that lesson in the 19th chapter of the first of Kings. We know the story of course. Elijah from Mount Carmel he runs before the chariot of Ahab down to, uh, to, to, to the capital city. He goes as the forerunner of the king, thinking that a great repentance had taken place and the king was changed and he thought he was introducing a new era in the history of Israel. 
And he went to the forerunner of that king, only to find when he got there that Jezebel sought his life. But no real, real change had taken place. And he flees in despair down to Mount Sinai. And down at Mount Sinai, Yahweh visits him. And Yahweh visits him, as we read in uh, verses uh, um, um, 10 to 12, we read that Yahweh asked him at the end of verse 9, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh Elohim of armies, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. You see, what Yahweh was showing Elijah was that it's not great manifestations of power that are going to change people's hearts, but it's the still, small voice of Yahweh. It's the still, small voice of the truth penetrating into people's hearts. That's what's going to change them. That's what's going to bring about genuine repentance. That's what's going to turn the hearts of the people back to Yahweh. And Elijah had to learn that lesson. You know that it says, when John the Baptist came, and the priests and the Levites came out to him, and they said, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. He said, are you that prophet? He says, no. He says, well, who are you then? I'm a voice. He says, I'm a voice. You know, in that voice was the power to turn many back to the Lord their God. You see, there was the spirit and the power of Elijah manifested in that man, in the voice, in the word that he proclaimed, that could enter into people's hearts, that could change their thinking, change their way of life, and bring them back to the Lord their God. You know, by the preaching of John, many of the children of Israel, many individuals, not the nation, but many individuals, he did turn to the Lord their God. And so you see, John did go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But the nation at large rejected him. They rejected him. And so that nation was smitten with a curse. And being smitten with that curse, we still await the glorious day when Elijah returned to the, uh, restored and, and, and sent forth by the Lord Jesus Christ to restore that nation of Israel will go forth in, with spirit and with power and he will change that nation and they will be restored to God's firstborn nation. They will be brought back to divine favour in the land of promise in the future. But you see, if the people had received the preaching of John the Baptist, if they had been turned back to the Lord their God, well, it would have been, John would have been Elijah to them then. They would have been restored to divine favour at that time. But they didn't. They, they rejected him. 
They did not listen to the still small voice.
as Elijah and John appeared upon the scene in times of great apostasy. Both of them came and called for religious reform. You know, in their very clothing and their way of life, they were identical. Second of Kings 18 and verse 1 speaks of the way that Elijah was clothed in a leathern girdle. Matthew 3 verse 4 speaks of almost identical words of John the Baptist. Their dress, their manner of life was identical. They both appeared suddenly and called for religious reform. Both of them were forerunners of the king. Elijah, thinking he brought about the reform, ran as a forerunner of Ahab down to the capital city of the northern tribes. John was the forerunner of the, of the great king of Israel who is yet to come. We find that Jezebel sought to slay Elijah. Herodias sought to slay John and succeed him. And the very manner of their lives, their work and their lives is striking resemblance. So striking that it must be more than mere coincidence. And so John the Baptist was to go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah to, to effect a reform for many individuals in Israel. And the very purpose of all this, we're told at the end of, of, of verse 17, the very purpose of it all, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, John did accomplish that. John did make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only did his preaching run throughout the length and breadth of that land, not only did people come from all over the land to hear the message of John, but you know, when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptised, he very soon received, as we read from John chapter 1, five, of his, five disciples are mentioned there in John chapter 1 that were prepared and ready to go with him and accompany him on his ministry as soon as it began. There were people prepared for the coming of the Lord. A, a spirit of great expectancy had been stirred up throughout that nation by the preaching of John in readiness that, that, that many might receive the great Messiah of Israel. Even long after John's death, long after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in the book of Acts of people who were still disciples of John and how they gladly received the preaching of the Apostle Paul. There were still there people being prepared for the Lord long after John had, had been and died. And so John did accomplish that work. He did make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The nation at large wasn't prepared for him but there were individuals within that nation who were. And so it was indeed a very remarkable promise that the angel made to Zechariah in those verses. And now we can, verse 18, we come to a change of subject. Just to put back the analysis of the chapter that we showed last time, we can see there in the main section, chapter 2, the promise and the begettle of John. We dealt with the 1, 2, 3, first 3 of those subsections. We've seen his parents introduced. We've read of the drama that took place in the Holy Place. We've read, we read of John's ministry being foretold in these verses that we've just considered. Now verses 18 to 23, like another, another subsection, Zechariah seeks a sign. And then finally, verses 24 to 25, the conception of John. 
And in these verses 18 to 23, we have recorded Zechariah's response to the words of the angel. An old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Now, by comparing this with verse 20, it becomes quite apparent that Zechariah's statement here, whereby shall I know this, was an exclamation of unbelief. Because in verse 20 we read the angel's words. Um, uh, towards the end of the verse there, uh, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And where he says, whereby shall I know this? He's saying, how can I be assured that this will happen? What proof can you give me that this is going to happen? He says, for I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And as Zechariah stands there in the holy place of the temple, if he was standing, but he was before the angel anyway, but he was before the angel in the holy place of the temple, he's had these remarkable promises made to him. You know, it's all the natural problems that well up in his mind. Me have a son, I'm an old man. My wife's well stricken in years. How's it going to be? And because of the circumstances of the moment, he was completely overcome and all the weaknesses of the flesh rose up in his mind, paramount. They were great problems. He couldn't see how those things could be surmounted at that moment. You know, as we see that man at that time, we see a graphic contrast to the man Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verses 19 and 20 we read of the disposition of Abraham Romans chapter 4 verses 19 and 20 and being not weak in faith he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. That was the mind of Abraham when God told him he was going to have a son when he was 100 years old and Sarah was past the age of bearing. Abraham, he says, didn't even take into account the deadness of his own body or the de- neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He believed that Yahweh was able to do what he promised. But now here's Zechariah and I'm not trying to say that Zechariah wasn't a faithful man. I believe that in the overall picture of his life Zechariah was an outstandingly faithful man. But at this moment of weakness this crisis that had come in his life he was completely overcome and all the natural weaknesses of the flesh, all the problems rose up paramount in his mind. You know, and how characteristic that is of all of us. How characteristic it is when usually the, the, the weaknesses of the flesh rise up and we can't see beyond them at times. It's not until later when we sit down and we think and we, we, we relate everything to the power of Yahweh that we realise that Yahweh is above the weaknesses of flesh But at that particular moment, Zechariah couldn't think like that. 
and all the problems rose up. He said, look, give me proof that this is going to happen because look, he thought it's against nature. But you see, he was a stark contrast to Abraham at that particular time. And he disbelieved and he sought proof that it would happen. And you know, in verse 19, I believe, the magnitude really of what Abraham had done, uh, what Zechariah had done, is emphasised. Because in verse 19, the angel replies to Zechariah as he stands there, his mind perplexed, all the problems rising up like mountains before him, seeking proof that these things are going to come to pass. And in verse 19 we read, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent on a special errand, as it were, to speak to you and to show you these glad tidings. And you haven't believed me. Now it was really no small thing that Zachariah had done. It was merely he was caught in a moment of weakness. But here was an angel of very high rank. An angel who had been sent at God's command. Sent to him to speak to him. To give him a very special message. And in the very face of that highly exalted being. Zachariah had said, give me proof that what you tell me is true. And he got proof all right. He got proof as he's outlined in verse 20. But nevertheless we see firstly that this angel that's been speaking to him is Gabriel. It's the angel Gabriel. And the name Gabriel means a mighty one of God. It's very similar, it's the same as we have in Isaiah chapter 6. The mighty God, Hail Gibor. And so a mighty one of God. He's an angel that had a, a very high rank among the angels. He stands in the presence of God. And he's been sent on a special message. You know, Gabriel is mentioned four times in the Bible. He's mentioned twice in the book of Daniel. He's mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, in verse 16, where in the vision of the ram and the he goat, we read in verse 16, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of Eli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. And he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for the time of the end shall be the vision. You know, Daniel's just been given a vision. A tremendous vision that, that, that sweeps through world history. From the, from the times of Babylon, uh, of Persia and of Greece, right down to the days yet future when the Lord Jesus Christ is to stand upon the earth again. And, and, and here in verse 16, well, it, Daniel hears, he hears a man's voice calling to Gabriel that the angel Gabriel might come and make this man understand the vision. And it was a particular work that was given to Gabriel at that time to impart understanding to Daniel for that great vision that had been given him. We go over to chapter 9 and verse 21 where we find the Gabriel mentioned again. We read, Daniel speaking again, he says, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, 
whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. So again we find a time when Gabriel was sent forth for the particular purpose of giving skill and understanding to Daniel. He says at the beginning of the supplication he received the commandment and he came to show Daniel and, and could cause him to understand the matter and to consider the vision. And he goes on and reveals in the next verses the time period that were to be to elapse between that time and the time of the manifestation of the Messiah in the midst of Israel. And that was Gabriel that revealed that to Daniel, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, the time period that was to elapse before Messiah, the, the Messiah was to be manifested in the midst of Israel. But we see on both of those occasions, Gabriel came to give understanding to Daniel and to cause him to understand the difficult things of the word of God. And, Dan- and Gabriel revealed to Daniel here in, in, in chapter 9 the time period that must be fulfilled before Messiah must be manifested in the midst of Israel. And the next time we read of Gabriel's name mentioned is in Luke chapter 1. And it's mentioned twice in Luke chapter 1 because Gabriel visits Zechariah and Gabriel also visits Mary. And that's the four times that Gabriel is mentioned in the word of God. Now here's this mighty angel that has the power to impart understanding to the word of God. This angel that had revealed the time period when Messiah was going to be manifested. And here he is now standing before Zechariah the, pro- uh, the, the priest. He's standing there and he's causing Zechariah to understand that the time was fulfilled that Yahweh was about to go to work in the midst of that nation, that the forerunner was to come and the Messiah was soon to be manifested in the midst of that nation. And here Zechariah the priest had disbelieved what he said. He sought for a sign that he might have proof that it would come to pass. He couldn't see how it could happen because he was an old man. His wife was well stricken in years. Even if they had a little child, would they live long enough to rear him? These were all the problems that welled up in his mind as he sought this sign. You know, he's rebuked by Gabriel there in verse 19 and verse 20. Gabriel impresses him with his rank, with his power, with his standing before God. And he says in verse 20, And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And so Zechariah is smitten dumb. The very mouth that had confessed unbelief was the very mouth that was smitten dumb. And it wasn't able to speak again until it had seen the fulfilment of those words. You know, there's three words used to describe Zechariah's dumbness. The first one in verse 20, Behold, thou shalt be dumb. It's a word which means silent. It's translated in other parts of the word to hold one's peace. It, it means silent, but it's nearly always used of speech. 
So he was to be silent. And then the word adds that he was not able to speak. The word speak there is a word which means to utter words. Quite well translated here. They will not be able to speak. So you'll be silent. You won't be able to utter words. Then when we come down to verse 22 and we read of when he came out, uh, we read at the end of that verse, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And there's another word again used there, a word kopos. It's a word which means literally to be dull or blunt. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. In this instance, it's translated speechless. The only place it's translated speechless. But eight times it's translated dumb and five times it's translated deaf. It's a word that can apply both to deafness and dumbness. You know, there are implications here in Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah could have been smitten both deaf and dumb. Because when we come down to verse 62 of the chapter we read and we're here at the time when, when John has been born and the relatives have come together and the relatives are going to take it into their own hands and name that child. And we read in verse 61 and they said unto her there is none of thy kindred as he called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying his name is John and they marvelled all. Now why should they make signs to him if he could hear? If they could have just said to him well what do you want him named? If he could hear that's all that would have been necessary. But they made signs to him. Now it's exactly the, they made signs to him is exactly the same word there as we find in verse 22 that he beckoned unto them. So they made signs unto him with the hands what he was going to have them name. And so the, the implications are that it is possible that Zachariah was smitten with both dumbness and deafness. You see, the very mouth that confessed unbelief was smitten dumb. The very ears that had disbelieved the words of the angel were probably stopped and a silence settled over Zachariah. A silence settled over him which was not to be broken until after that child was born. You know, right through this chapter, right through the circumstances of Zachariah's life, when his tongue was loosed and he could speak again, we find not one single sign of a complaint. There's not even a suggestion that Zachariah complained about what, was, what befell him. There's not a single sign of any bitterness over what happened. It's quite apparent, brothers and sisters, that Zachariah recognised that that punishment was just and deserved. I believe he accepted that. He recognised that he'd been absolutely foolish in allowing the problems of the flesh to rise up and to speak in the way he did at that time. And in those nine, ten months of silence, we can imagine those, those words, those last words that he would have heard if he was in fact there, were the words of the angel Gabriel concerning the son that was going to be born, the great work that he was going to do, the coming of the Messiah soon to be manifested in that nation. And we can imagine how scripture after scripture would have gone through the mind of Zechariah. And indeed, you know, when his tongue was loose, Zechariah poured forth a most magnificent psalm, a psalm which is a glorious exposition of scripture, a psalm of praise to Almighty God and for the great work that was 
that, there was, that Yahweh was about to accomplish in the midst of that nation. And so he was really a very great man, Zechariah. The overall picture of his life, he's a man of great faith. A man of great faith, but he was caught in a moment of weakness. And for ten months he suffered dumbness and possibly deafness as well. He suffered that punishment for that moment of weakness, but he accepted it. He recognised that it was just. There was no root of bitterness in him. There was no murmur of complaint. But when that tongue is loose, it flows forth in praise to Almighty God. Indeed, Zechariah is a great example for every one of us. Now we come then down to verses 21 and 22. And the people waited for Zechariah and marvelled that he tarried so long in the temple. You know, the whole of the temple service was held up. You know, the, the priest waited for the priest to come forth from burning the, the, the incense before, I believe, the, 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 the sacrifice upon the altar was offered, the, the, the singing of the temple songs took place, and so on and so forth. And while Zechariah was detained in the holy place of that temple, the whole of that temple service was held up and the people waited and they waited and they marvelled that he was so long coming out. And we can imagine the concern that would begin to, 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 to spread over those assembled people and the priests waiting to perform their duties. Had anything happened to him in that, in that holy place? Had he dropped down dead in the holy place? All these thoughts would probably have been going through their minds at this time as they marvelled that he tarried so long in the temple. And then finally, Zechariah comes out. Because when he comes out, he couldn't speak to them. It was the normal practice of the priest, having come forth from the holy place, having burnt the incense. He would pronounce a blessing upon the assembled people. It is said that he would pronounce the words of Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 to 26. Yahweh lift up his face upon thee and, and give thee peace and so forth. And the people were there waiting for him to come out and pr- pronounce that blessing upon them. But the priest comes out and he can't say anything. He can't pronounce it. He's making signs with his hands but he can pronounce no blessing. I wonder what Zachariah would have proclaimed if he could have spoke at that time. I wonder what he would have said to that assembled people had he believed the angel's words and had he come forth with the power of speech. What a blessing he could have pronounced upon the people at that time. You see, but he was dumb. He couldn't speak. He couldn't pronounce a blessing. All he could do was beckon with his hands and make signs to them. And the people, he says, perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple. They realised that something out of the ordinary had happened. Something unusual was beginning to take place in the midst of that nation. But they didn't really know what because he couldn't tell them. He remained speechless. You know, and go on into verse 23 and we read, and it came to pass. But as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed in his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months. He went to his own house and his wife Elizabeth conceived. You know, when he got back to his house, he'd have had to convey the message to Elizabeth of what had happened. He couldn't speak to her. He would have to write it all down. He'd give a complete written account of everything that had happened, and of the words of that angel, of the remarkable promise that had been made. 
And as, they, as Elizabeth read those words, you know, she was, as she read those words, I believe we're told what, what, what reaction it had upon her mind. Now we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. It's not written of Elizabeth. It's written of Sarah. Sarah, who was in a very similar set of circumstances, had a very old husband, was very old herself, well past the age of bearing, been barren all her life. And Hebrews 11 and verse 11 says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sarah didn't doubt the words of the angel. She believed that Yahweh was able to give her her son and through that faith she received strength to conceive seed. And here's this old woman Elizabeth, well stricken in years, been barren all her life, well stricken in years, and now her husband's come home and he can't speak, but she reads the account of what's happened. She reads the words of the angel Gabriel and she believes it. She believes it and she receives strength to conceive seed like her mother and Sarah had many years before. And we read in that 24th verse that it came to, and after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months. What a truly remarkable woman this was. As she read that account of Gabriel's words she believed that she was strengthened by faith and she conceived seed in her old age. He said she hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among men. She hid herself five months. It's quite understandable that a woman of her age would keep herself out of the public eye, probably for the whole period until the child was born. But it says particularly she hid herself five months. Five is the number of grace. And undoubtedly the thing that was uppermost in her mind over those five months was the grace of Yahweh that was about to be manifested toward that nation. Because she would have spent five months meditating upon that grace. There's other reasons too, I believe, she'd have hit herself. She was an old woman, known to be barren. In fact, the implication of Luke chapter 1 is that she was called the barren one. She was known to be barren. She was well stricken in years. And she suddenly rushed out and told her neighbours, I'm going to have a son. Would they have believed her? I'd have thought she'd gone senile. She'd have become the laughing stock of the district for a few weeks until it became apparent that what she said was right. So it's it's quite understandable that she would conceal herself away in her own house. She kept these things to herself. And I believe it says she kept these to hid herself for five months because you see in the next verse we learn that in the sixth month she received a visitor. She received a visitor, a young woman by the name of Mary. Because the angel Gabriel had visited Mary with a great message too. And on receiving that message, well, part of the message of course was in verse 26, uh, that, that, uh, or part of the message was, 
not, not the message, the part we're thinking of is not in verse 26, but part of that message was that Elizabeth, her cousin, was with child. And it was the sixth month with, with, with Elizabeth, it was with child. And Mary, receiving this great promise herself, goes straight down to Elizabeth. She goes straight to Elizabeth. You know, she went to Elizabeth before she ever told Joseph. Elizabeth was the first person she went to. That was a journey of some considerable distance. Mary was living in Nazareth. We're told that from verse 26. She was living in Nazareth. Elizabeth was living in the hill country of Judea. We're not told exactly where, it just says a city in the hill country of Judea. It is believed by many, Brother Robert Roberts was one, that, that, that it was, would have been Hebron, because Hebron was a, a city of the priests. But there were other cities of the priests in the hill country of Judea. It could have been Hebron, it, it may not have been. We're not told. If it was important, we would have been told. But from Nazareth to Hebron, in a straight line as the crow flies, is 85 miles. But to take that journey by road would involve about a hundred miles of travelling. Now Mary receives a visit from Gabriel. She immediately sets out on this hundred mile journey. In days when travel was not easy, neither was it safe. She sets out on a hundred mile journey to go straight down to Elizabeth. And in the sixth month, from the time that John was conceived, Elizabeth receives this visitor. This beautiful young woman, Mary, came and joined Elizabeth in the house. Now why did Mary go down to Elizabeth? Well, undoubtedly, because the two of them here had something in common. They were both the recipients of Yahweh's grace. Great things were happening to both of them. And she wanted to get with Elizabeth. Elizabeth. She wanted to rejoice with Elizabeth over the great things that Yahweh was doing at that time. But you see, I believe also there could have been another reason as well. Elizabeth was a very old woman. You know, the last few couple of months, the last few weeks of carrying a child is a burden even for a young woman. Elizabeth was well stricken in years. And I believe Mary would have known that Elizabeth would be in need. She would have known that Elizabeth needed ministration at that time. She would have known that Elizabeth would need help through those times. And that Luke chapter 1 tells us that Mary goes straight down there and stays there till after the child was born. Or that the words of Luke aren't after the child was born. The words of Luke are about three months. Which brings you right to the time of the birth of that child. I believe it's just a little insight into the very beautiful character of this young woman. But when she heard of what had happened to Elizabeth, not only did she want to go down there to rejoice with her, that they might encourage one another, that they might rejoice together over the glorious things that Yahweh was beginning to do in that nation, but I believe she went there, that she might help Elizabeth, that she might minister to her at a time of need. She went there as a servant to Elizabeth, and I believe she would have gone home a very enriched person after spending three months in the house of this great man and woman, Zachariah and Elizabeth.
three months sitting as it were at their feet undoubtedly in the providence of God a, a provision to prepare this young virgin for the unequal responsibility that was soon to be laid upon her shoulders that she was to be the mother of God's only beloved son and so brothers and sisters we must leave our study there but on the next class, if the Lord wills, we will look at the message of the angel Gabriel to this young virgin of the city of Nazareth, even Mary, the one who was to be the mother of the Lord.